Well, as with any subject that we approach from a Christian perspective, I think the aim is always to edify and to encourage the greater body of Christ so that we can have a worldview that is robust and can answer and can respond to the challenges that the church faces in every generation and at all times with a proper understanding of biblical Christianity. We want to be able to answer uh, whatever crisis of culture we're in or political crisis or what have you. But today, uh, we're talking about a subject that may not be as easy to respond to as you think. Because today, we're talking about the, the, the real probability of a cashless society and of a digital ID, and what exactly does that mean for the Christian church? And also... We're talking about a subject that, let's just admit and get this off the table right now, it's a subject that really is not discussed by a lot of people. For many people, this is a subject that's kind of off table and outside of the Christian mainstream and in the realm of conspiratorial discussions, but really, it's no longer that. Uh, A story that recently surfaced in the media and that was covered by multiple outlets makes it now impossible for us as Christians to avoid talking about that very thing, Uh, the emergence of a cashless society, of a digital ID, and things that may come with that. So welcome to the show, everybody. My name is Emilio Ramos for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. The story that I'm talking about appeared in the New York Fed and was covered by uh, different news outlets like Reuters and others and Bloomberg and ShiftGold.com was a website that carried much of this story. Uh, according to the New York Fed, <clears throat> on Tuesday, and now I'm quoting this article, on Tuesday, November 15th, the New York Federal Reserve announced a 12-week pilot program in partnership with several large commercial banks to test the, fe- the, fe- the feasibility of a central bank digital currency. Um, In other words, what that is saying is that they are doing a test case scenario, a 12-week pilot program to see the the feasibility of a cashless society, to understand what will happen if we move towards a central bank and a digital currency uh, program for the nation. Right now, they're testing in it, testing it more locally in New York. But of course, that is going to ultimately scale upwards to something greater than just a local city or state. Of course, there is there is the absolute intent to go uh, national with this, international and ultimately global. According to Reuters, the pilot test is going to see how banks that use this digital dollar can roll out tokens that are connected to a common database so that they can help speed up financial payments. 
as if payments or faster payments of any kind is really the goal. Of course, that's not the goal. It never is the goal. So anytime we hear stories like this, and we hear that they are saying the reason we're doing this is for greater facility, we're doing this for greater fiscal financial efficacy, and those kinds of things, just remember that's never really truly the goal. The goal of anything that is that is centralized, that is brought under one central control, is always power and control. Again, this by shiftgold.com, who covered the story, uh, it says in earlier this year, the Federal Reserve released a discussion paper examining the pros and cons of a potential U.S. central bank digital dollar, in other words, a digital currency. According to the central bank's website, there, there has been no discussion on implementing a digital currency, but this pilot program reveals the idea is further along than most people realized. Now, the article goes on to say that the new digital dollar they're working on will work uh, very much the way that cryptocurrency works right now. And just to be honest, when I first saw cryptocurrency on the scene, I I immediately thought about the elimination of cash altogether and the emergence of a digital ID type world And that too, my friends, is absolutely connected to this, and that is inevitably, in my opinion, coming. I always thought there was a reason why governments of the world have allowed cryptocurrency to exist. The way that cryptocurrency works is still being debated by financial gurus all over the world in terms of the pros and cons of such a currency. Recent story, FTX, showing you exactly how volatile and dangerous it is to, f- to financially invest in something like cryptocurrency because the people that control whatever cryptocurrency or whatever crypto company you're investing in, they always have agendas. And those agendas are often uh, political. Those agendas are often connected to some sort of global philosophical bent. And therefore, it's not an objective thing. It's not a gray area. Currency, cryptocurrency, uh, just like any big uh, financial organization or corporation or company or what have you, they're always going to be uh, controlled by some sort of worldview, some sort of uh, political, ethical, social agenda. FTX was, and we saw what happened there. For those of you that don't know, FTX was a cryptocurrency company controlled by a liberal leftist uh, thinking uh, you know, entrepreneur that got a bunch of people to invest in his cryptocurrency company and that ended up being a huge Ponzi scheme. At any rate, uh, when we think about what this story is saying, this pilot program running in New York to try to see how successful, what are the pros, what are the cons of having a completely digital uh, a currency, a completely cashless society, then we understand that this is a very, very complicated subject, and it's also, as we'll see, very, very dangerous. Now, of course, All of this is done in the name of convenience, in the name of security, in the name of, uh, you know, of being more pragmatic in finances, 
of, of making everything easier, making all of the financial world interconnected so that we can more easily uh, advance trade and progress and all that kind of stuff. It's always sort of couched in the name of you know, better and stronger economics, of course. Now, the guy that covered this story is a journalist by the name of Michael Mahari, and this is what Mahari said. He said, imagine if there was no cash, it would be impossible to hide even the smallest transaction from government eyes. Government eyes. Something as simple as your morning trip to Starbucks wouldn't be a secret from government officials. Now, Obviously, I would argue that we're already there. We're already at that point where there's very, very little that you and I can do in the modern world uh, that doesn't uh, get, you know, documented and picked up. And, you know, the fact that we all have smartphones in our pockets that pretty much trace and track and record everything that we're doing and dump it into some kind of algorithm where they predict exactly what you're thinking, how you're shopping, what you're searching for, where you're meeting, who you're meeting with, who, uh, how you may vote. For example, all these algorithms, of course, is just another way of talking about AI technology that depends on one thing, and that is data. Now, dataism is a new phenomenon that is on the scene uh, that in modern times has begun to dominate the whole uh, realm of cutting-edge technology, as especially as we approach things like artificial intelligence, virtual reality, as we're thinking about technologies like the metaverse and things like that. Now, when we think about data, I got to tell you, there is one player in the world and on the world scene that matters more than others, and that is China. And of course, the reason why is because China, more than any other nation in the world, is invested in data mining, is invested in data collection. And therefore, this is where China enters this conversation as a potential template for the future world as it relates to something as volatile as digital currency. That's why it's so important for us to see what is China doing um, what what does it look like in China as they roll out their aggressive technological systems on their people because they don't have the type of uh, human rights strictures that we do here in the West. They don't believe in basic human rights. They don't believe in freedom of speech. They don't believe in the Second Amendment. They don't believe in the open market, in capitalism. They are absolutely a communistic, tyrannical society that has no problems whatsoever enforcing upon their population some of the most oppressive and inhumane um, uh, measures in order to control and surveil their population, and they serve as a parable for us that can very, very easily go from, oh, look what China's doing, to, no, China is a template of what others want to do in their uh, in their their own nation, their own country, and their own populace, and that's why China is so absolutely important. Again, Bloomberg, another, uh, um, well, this time a mainstream outlet, Bloomberg, not the most conservative, of course, but covered this entire story uh, of this digital uh, currency and this uh, pilot program, 
And they talked about China, and they they warned, which is remarkable, because here you have a very leftist-leaning organization like Bloomberg cautioning us about China's social credit score system. Now, what's interesting, as you'll see, when they talk about it, they leave out the word score, uh, which is very important. But this is what Bloomberg said. Bloomberg said, and I quote, the PBOC, which is, uh, uh, I think it's Public Bank of China, uh, says it has indicated that it could put limits on the sizes of some transactions, meaning in their digital currency uh, rollout, they would limit how many transactions and how big your transaction can even be. So there again, from the outset, um, we're talking about digital currency having limits as to what you can spend because, of course, in that situation, your money is actually no longer yours. Um, they would even require an appointment to make large transactions. Uh, Bloomberg goes on, says, Some observers wondered whether payments would be linked to the emerging social credit system. Now, notice that Bloomberg leaves off the word score, as in social credit system, social credit score, because that really is what it is. But they, they talk about it nonetheless. They says, in this system, citizens with exemplary behavior are whitelisted for privileges, while those with criminal and other infractions, quote unquote, find themselves left out. Well, of course, infractions is an interesting word because basically what that means is anything that the government of China doesn't like, anything that you do that's contrary to China's interests and who defines those interests other than China. And so, of course, um, this is a credit score system, not just a credit system at a social level. It is a score in other words, they're giving you a grade, and that grade, that score, will either give you privileges or uh, they'll hold you back. Um, and so China's goal, is, uh, the, the story goes on here, China's goal is not to make payments more convenient, but to replace cash so it can keep closer tabs on people than it already does, argues Aaron Brown, a crypto in investor who writes for Bloomberg. Now, the article on shiftgold.com goes on to list other countries that are now actively pushing for digital currency. Right now, this is not... See, and the reason why I decided to talk about this was not because this is something that we need to warn the future generation of. No, no, we're in the generation now. We were warned. We were warned in the 70s and 80s and 90s. We have been warned, and most of the time, those that warned us were labeled either total conspiracy theorists or they were labeled, you know, oh, whatever, extreme <laughs> rapture theorists or something like that, right? Um, whatever the case may be, we are no longer in the stage where we're warning people. We are now in the stage of watching it happen before our eyes. According to shiftgold.com, Sweden is rolling out its own form of digital currency even as we speak. Now, check this out. Everybody knows that if you've been watching the news last couple months, uh, Europe and the UN and, uh, you know, the European nations, <laughs> they, they're not getting along with Russia right now. <laughs> but both the European Central Bank, 
which obviously is not the same thing as the nation necessarily, but you, you get the point. Uh, you know, this is at the very heart of the economy in Europe, but the European Central Bank and Russia has also expressed that digital currency is the future of their banking system. So take note that it is no longer just Russia. Why is the U.S. allowing a pilot program in New York to test out for 12 weeks, apparently? Who knows if it'll go beyond that? Why are we allowing a pilot program where we are testing the merits of a cashless society? Um, do you think maybe it has something to do with the fact that other nations are going to get there no matter what? that it is inevitable that we're going to a digital currency and that the U.S. doesn't want to be left in the proverbial, uh, you know, fiscal or economic dust. I mean, of course, they are competing with all these other nation states to get to this digital banking system as quickly as possible and to lead in that sector and not be left behind. Now, the article here, I think, is really important because... Um, it goes on to warn us about what uh, the author here, Meharry, is talking about in terms of the dark side of digital currency. It goes on to say, U.S. officials have toyed with the possibility of a digital dollar at the height of the pandemic. Now, this is interesting because what they're saying is that when something like, um, when something like the pandemic happened, um, some people in the banking world, in the, in the economic world, okay, and U.S. officials, government officials, are now playing around with the possibility of, of a digital dollar to be used in conjunction with something like the pandemic, which is very interesting, in order to take advantage of that moment to roll out this kind of shift in the social economic order of our world and of our country. A democratic proposal for stimulus payments in the wake of the coronavirus featured digital currency deposited into digital wallets. Now, I have an iPhone, and in my iPhone, I have a digital wallet. Now, that digital wallet serves the purpose of sort of collecting on a digital, uh, you know, on a digital format things like your boarding pass for the airport, maybe certain membership passes and certain credit cards that you want to have in digital form so that you can use just in case, you know, whatever, you leave your wallet in your car or whatever at home. Uh, but this is, um, this is the way that this is all being rolled out, is that first, we embrace the technology of digital wallets. We embrace, forget having a plastic credit card Let's go with a digital credit card, and, the, and, and we see it as, oh, well, it's an option. It's just there for convenience in case you forget your wallet or you forget your credit card at home or what have you. And it goes from convenience, and it goes from well, having another option, and it goes from a leverage point to a point where you no longer have the option to opt in or opt out. Uh, that's exactly what they're working on with these digital wallets and digital currency. Um, and so, in other words, what this article is saying, guys, is that they've already been toying with this. Of course, 
you know, um, it's no secret. They've been talking about a cashless society for decades now, okay? But they're actually, during the pandemic, they actually talked about the actual implementation of this thing. And our politicians are zealous to see this come to pass, apparently. Perhaps that has nothing to do with the fact that politicians crave, above all things, power and control. But the article goes on. Economist Thorsten Pollitt outlined the potential for big brother-like government control with the advent of a digital euro in an article published by Mises Wire. As he put it, the path to becoming a surveillance state regime will accelerate considerably even and when a digital currency is issued. See, for a lot of these guys, it is a foregone conclusion that this is going to happen. It's just a matter of time. And is it? And as it pertains to the Christian response, what is going to be our Christian response? We're no longer at a place where we can opt out of these talking points anymore. We're no longer at a place where oh, we'll just let the conspiracy theorists on the internet talk about this, or we'll just let the zealous, you know, uh, pre-tribulational folks talk about this. We're no longer at that place. We're at the place now where they're saying this is not just you know. This is not just a possibility, this is an inevitability at this point. And so therefore, if we think that events like COVID showed us anything, then you know, man, it just takes one event, one string of events to catapult us into a cascade of other events in which our lives are radically changed overnight. I mean, did you think even for a moment in your wildest dreams, overnight, you'd wake up in the United States of America and you would be told to stand six feet apart from one another, like sheep, like cattle, that we would be uh, funneled and directed and that you'd go to the grocery store and there'd be stickers on the floor telling you where to stand and that you'd have to wear a mask or else you can't enter the store, enter the restaurant, you can't go see your doctor, you can't enter you know what, the library, wherever, it doesn't matter. Look, just to illustrate how insane all of this is and was, recently visited a knee doctor, uh, and while I was checking in for this appointment, I was told you have to wear a mask um, while you're waiting to be called in by the doctor. Uh, and after not a little protest, <laughs> I eventually complied because I really did need to see my doctor. And there you have it, pressure points of technology. But to show you how insane all of this is, is that here you have a patient like me protesting the enforcement of having to put on a mask and then going in the back to talk to my doctor who took off his mask and told me he can't stand wearing these stupid things and that I don't have to wear it in his office if I don't want to, so I immediately proceeded to tearing it off my face. And that doctor was obviously a, a good guy. But, but as you can see, that's the kind of insane world that we're living in now. And who saw this coming? Nobody. Nobody was talking about that. Nobody was preparing us as a church to say, look, hey, one event could easily move us in the direction where you're going to be forced to do stuff that you may not want to do, that you may think is irrational, that you may think is paranoid, that you may think is, is, is tyrannical even. And nobody prepared us. Everyone was caught by surprise. 
and even now, I mean, still, um, as a country, as a as a as a nation, as a populace, we're still disillusioned by it all. I'm not quite sure what to say about it all. Not quite sure what to do about it all. And it seems like every single one of us is just waiting for the na- next wave of whatever it is that's coming next, COVID or worse. Um, look, before I leave off of this article, let me just mention one more thing. The journalist. Uh, Meharry had to say here, he said, governments around the world have quietly waged a war on cash for years. Back in 2017, the IMF published a creepy paper uh, offering government suggestions on how to move toward a cashless society, even in the face of strong public opposition. So there you have it. Um, The IMF, the World Bank, and players like that the most powerful or, uh, uh, of financial organizations on planet Earth, tr- teaching governments how to quell the public and how to stamp back opposition from people. And this is why it matters, of course, because we are talking about the loss of freedom. And I think this is one of the reasons why this article I found to be very helpful because I appreciate the fact that this journalist didn't hesitate, didn't hold back from warning us and telling us about the unmistakable terms uh, or the in unmistakable terms about what he deems to be the quote unquote dark side of a cashless society. He goes on to say here, as with most things in uh, that the government does, You should be weary of the digital dollar. Wow, there it is. It has a dark side that you can be sure the mainstream will mostly ignore. Very, very telling. Again, this was a story that was picked up by Reuters, Bloomberg, Fox News talked about it. um, And yet, Shift.com covered it and wasn't afraid to talk about the fact that there is a dark side to all of this and that mainstream media, where most of us get our information, whether we like it or not, we do get our information there, at least in part, but this will be something that will be mostly ignored. Now, here's a question. As we think about how this affects us as citizens, as Americans, as people that believe in free speech and people that believe in personal rights, as people that believe in capitalism, as people that believe in an open market system, and people that believe in uh, you know, freedom of speech and pri- the, the right to own private property and bear arms and constitutionalists and what have you, that's only one level of this. That's only one layer of this. The question is, as a church, as a Christian people generation, American church, How does this affect us now? How will it affect us when, in fact, this comes out? And what should be our response? So today, uh, more questions than answers uh, for sure. Should this affect the way that we vote? What does that say about our voting rights? What does that say about our philosophy of voting now? to know that you could very well be voting for politicians that are in support of a cashless society that will result in the dark side of all of this, 
and how this could be just a step closer to a digital credit score system. How does that affect the way that you look at your politicians? Do we really have politicians who even care about any of these subjects? Is the entire system rigged against us in this regard? What about the future of discipleship? As we think about the church and discipleship and theology and training and teaching, listen, the job of the church is to catechize its people, to train them and to teach them the faith for all delivered unto the saints, Jude 3. It's to teach them a proper theology of God, theology of man, a proper theology of salvation, a proper uh, theology of uh, sin, etc., etc. We want our people to understand the Trinity, the hypostatic union, the, the nature of sovereign grace, the nature of saving grace. But how does it affect discipleship in the 21st century when we're looking and when we're staring in the face of the potential for massive, tyrannical overreach of government and how we should educate the Christian church? Do we put more of an emphasis on suffering because suffering is inevitable? Because there's going to come a point in time where the Christian church can simply no longer go any further down this path of a truly digital ID of your identification being determined by what happens to you digitally. (laughs) I mean, amazing. Do we need to train people what it means to walk with Christ in poverty? Do Do we need to take a much, much closer look at those sections in Scripture that depict poor brethren, like the churches in Macedonia? For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. Do we need to start teaching the people in the church that we need to, in an, in, in sort of a, uh, in an, I guess we could say it in a artificial sense, to be less materialistic? In other words, to learn to have less because of the potential for Christians to really truly be marginalized in this society and to end up, as others have pointed out, to end up in a digital ghetto prior to a physical ghetto. I mean, is that the future of what's coming? Are we ready for that? What would happen to your walk with God if and when those choices are set in front of you? And what I'm trying to say here today is that that conversation is no longer off the table. What I'm trying to say here today is that that conversation is no longer theoretical, but that we need to start having those conversations. What about martyrdom? Do we dare talk to our people today about martyrdom? I mean, you open up your Bibles, you open up your New Testament, you open up the epistles, you open up the book of Acts, and what do you see but suffering, oppressed, poor, um, you know, uh, Christians that are being afflicted at every turn. I mean, I'm trying to think of a book, but almost every single book of the New Testament contains examples of suffering and persecution. And we have been remarkably blessed in the West thus far to, by and large, go unpersecuted, maybe oppressed, maybe maligned, maybe attacked, maybe opposed, and those kinds of things. 
Maybe we're witnessing a government that's doing things and going in directions that we don't want. But for the most part, up till now, in the West, you don't go to jail just because you don't want to go along with the entire system financially, economically, sociologically. We might have instances here and there. We might have the Christian baker that's sued and those kinds of things, but we're still winning those kind of court cases. But what happens when the entire system becomes a social credit score kind of Chinese sort of system, how do we go along with that? Um, I, I, I obviously believe that there's going to be degrees in which we can go along with it. We can survive under it. We can even flourish under it. We can preach the gospel and advance the gospel, but the conditions will be different. And so I think in the Christian church, now more than ever, we need to prepare the rising generation with much of what the New Testament talks about in terms of suffering. Uh, Do we need to prepare our people to see mass apostasy? You know, uh, as I've been studying uh, the issue of technology, transhumanism, post-humanism, technological singularity, these kinds of issues that... um, not a lot of people are writing on right now, focusing on, especially from a Reformed, solid Christian perspective. There's just not a lot of literature out there. Um, But one thing that I have noticed is that in all this literature, and the reason why this kind of comes full circle is we're thinking about a digital currency, uh, is that I write down everywhere I see in these books of what I call pressure points of technology or pressure points, because there comes a point in time where as this technology is developing, it very, very quickly spills over into technocracy, where technology is used for the purple, excuse me, for the purpose of social governance and it goes beyond just a digital wallet for the sake of convenience, <laughs> and it goes toward areas like transhumanism and the loss of morphological freedom. In other words, freedom to change or be enhanced by technology. Absolutely amazing. And therefore, this begins to ask different questions. Thankfully, I- I'm grateful for this As you're listening to this, and you might be thinking, what in the world do I make out of all this? What do I do? Look, a cashless society, a digital ID, digital credit scores, technocracy, implantable technology, which, Lord willing, we're going to get to in our next uh, episode. But I'm so thankful that Scripture speaks to all these issues. And so maybe a new layer or even a new depth of what it means to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture is not just sufficient uh, because it is authoritative. How far does the sufficiency of Scripture go with you? Um, Have you thought about the sufficiency of Scripture as it relates to things like technology? Have you thought about the sufficiency of Scripture as it relates to things like implantable technology, augmented reality, virtual reality, and those kinds of things? There's nothing new under the sun. But we need um, 
we need to do much more in the area of preparing the church to use scripture to solidify what we believe about things like anthropology, eschatology, and I'm not just talking about the parts that people tend to debate about in eschatology, but I'm talking about the parts that inform our anthropology again. What about eschatology? Uh, Quickly here, we need to deal with that. What about your eschatology in light of all of this? If a cashless society, a digital credit score system, according to some, is in one way or another somehow or seemingly inevitable, and I personally believe it is, and so if I would have to make some kind of prediction here, I would have to say, yes, that that is going to come. They're going to make a push. The next 10 to 25 years, um, look, I think the next 25 years, we could be in a completely full-scale digital ID world, digital currency world, far gone conclusion, implantable technology everywhere, those kinds of things. And so as it comes to predictions, uh, yeah, I, I think the digital currency issue is a foregone conclusion. And what does that mean? Is all hell getting ready to break loose in the world because of that? Do you think we should be escapists the way that <laughs> some rapture theorist folks believe? <laughs> right? We're out of here. God won't put us through anything too bad. That's not my eschatology. Do you think that we'll use all of this technology? Do you think we'll use the, the cashless society, the digital credit score, the, the, the digital ID, the digital currency? Are we going to use all of this for our advantage as Reconstructionists uh, are thinking about? That ultimately, this will be just a little disturbance, <laughs> a little blip on the screen, and we'll get past this, and we'll take over, and, and, and we'll begin to right the ship, and we'll begin to guide everything and steer it the right way. That's not my eschatology either. Do you think that we'll see the church in the West forced to decide to civilly disobey at some point? Well, what point is that? And for what issues do we draw the line at the loss of morphological freedom, implantable technology to say, hey, look, you can't see your doctor, you can't go to school, you can't get an education, you can't get a job unless you get implantable tech. Implantable technology uh, is, according to many uh, European countries, uh, look, it's a foregone conclusion. Um, China is working on, Denmark is working on it, Russia is working on this. Uh, uh, it's unbelievable. Does this encourage you to become more co- culturally wired and, and culturally uh, minded, or do you do you get more detached? Do you want to just kind of forget it all and not focus on any of it? I think all of those attitudes are easy to do. It's easy. It's easy to go one way or the other. It's it's easy to get completely absorbed in culture and then forget your biblical mandate, your 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 um 
your evangelical mandate to preach the gospel, to evangelize, to fulfill the Great Commission, to engage in missions and evangelism and discipleship in the local church. Does this embolden you to preach the gospel or to recoil, to raise awareness or to fence yourself in and try to escape it all, just to block it all out of your mind? I guess philosophically, the question then becomes, does this make you more fatalistic? Does this make you more pessimistic? Or does this make you more hopeful for heaven? I think that scripture would tell us that as we see the world getting worse and worse and worse, that we should, in a sense, look up our redemption is drawing near. Does this make you look at your life much more like a pilgrim, as Scripture says, as a sojourner, an alien that's traveling through a strange land, a Babylonian world, a Babylite world? I think it should. Do you feel less at home in this world now than ever before? There's a sense in which I think we should. How does this affect your priorities in discipleship? When do we begin to prioritize in the church? When do we begin to prioritize eschatology, anthropology, and the image of God? Hey, listen, I got to tell you, there have been numerous occasion, occasions in which I have told leaders, pastors, ministry leaders, that I would desire to see a different emphasis in the reform world, in the evangelical world, in the Calvinist world. Um, Lord willing, uh, next year in March, I think it's in March, I'll be uh, attending the Shepherds Conference, for example, of some friends there and other friends that we might be thinking about going together. That's always a good time. I like running into people out there and talking to good friends like uh, whoever, Justin Peters and Phil Johnson and um, you know, other guys that over the years I, I love just kind of uh, checking in with and see how they're doing and how their ministries are going and uh, just a host of pastor friends I know there. But when are our conferences, not to focus on Shepherd's Conference, but whatever it is, when when will we bring these issues into the very mainstream of our conferences, when are we going to tackle these issues head on instead of, well, it's a breakout session in the back and 20 pastors attended that breakout session and from the main, you know, from the main session from the pulpit, we heard about Calvinism again for the 10th year in a row. I don't know, guys. I don't know. I think it's time for us to take our Reformed worldview and to begin to speak to some of these issues head on, like transhumanism, globalism, um, pagan pluralism, and those kinds of things. How, speaking of pluralism, how does all of this affect our spirituality? In other words, how do we look at the world now? How do we, in our piety, how do we consume the culture knowing that this culture is moving in these kinds of directions? How do we think about the information that we're getting from media? All of that matters. All of that matters. And what does it ultimately mean for the church? Well, I think it raises a host of issues for the American church. And one of the things that it raises is the volatility of information. 
As we learn more and more and more about the quote-unquote dark side of digital currencies, just one example, but ultimately of digital IDs and those kinds of things of credit score type systems and, and those kinds of applications of technology, how can we in good conscience go along with a system that is so tyrannical and oppressive How do we, as the church, therefore, maintain our witness in these times, in this digital age? For some people, it's very simple. Just keep doing the same old stuff. I get it. But there is a a new uh, language barrier that is being created, and we need to be able to scale that language barrier. We need to be able to scale those concepts to be able to effectively talk to people who are more and more being shaped by a digital ID. In other words, they're determining their identity based on their lives digitally. And so I think that's so important, the way we look at politics now, the way that we uh, engage the whole political spectrum. I mean, do we get more politically involved? Or are we too politically minded already? Uh, What about the ministry of the new covenant? I mean, when you look at the ministry of the new covenant in the church, you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, for example, is it politically charged? What example does the apostle Paul leave us? What's the, what, what is the end goal for the church as we think about its mission? And as we think about what's going on and as we think about moving forward in the American church, is this the end of evangelicalism? Is evangelicalism going to be so radically compromised in the 21st century that it's really truly time for us to move on to another form of orthodox identity, even from reform folks? Are we moving more in a reconstructionist direction or in an escapist direction? These are huge, I think these are uh, titanic issues that are coming, and that for the typical Christian, they don't know where the balance is. Do we care more about our piety, or do we care more about our politics? I mean, really, is piety uh, something that is just, uh, you know, something that is just truly private, and politics is really where we cut our teeth? I mean, I mentioned this in recent episode on Red Grace Media on YouTube, but we talked about the fact that perhaps we've become too politically rationalistic. And what about persecution? Are we really truly equipped right now as a Christian church? Are we truly really equipped to suffer for the gospel? Is suffering for the gospel a virtue? Or, or have we developed mainly a philosophy of fight of activism of you know uh have we start in our minds are we thinking more in terms of a militia christianity or are we too are are we truly pilgrim minded i mean these are huge concepts that we got to think about now i want to leave us with just a couple scriptures to think about in light of everything that's going on let's say in the next five years very realistic In the next five years, on a global scale, a digital currency is developed, a series of catastrophic issues strike at a global scale, forcing us to adopt some sort of global measure like a digital currency, a digital ID, a digital 
credit score system, it's always important to keep in mind passages like Psalm chapter 2. The nations can rage, God's installed as king, and everything is under his dominion, period. The book of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 2 that though we don't see everything subject to him yet, nevertheless it is. Nevertheless, it is. And Hebrews 11, therefore, becomes absolutely logical. If Christ is absolutely ruling and reigning, he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father, well, then it makes sense that our kingdom is not of this world. Then it makes sense that we are not preparing a place for him against post-mill theonomy, for example. We're not preparing a place for him. He is preparing a place for us. Don't ever get that backwards, because I think they have. But also, Philippians chapter 3, to be reminded, your citizenship is not in this world. It's not found in any nation, any country, any nationality, or any social movement. It's found in the heavenly Zion, in the city of God. Your citizenship is in heaven. That is important. And also, don't forget, Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, how do we overcome in the face of unthinkable adversity? I'm sure that Revelation chapter 12 uh, has much to do with what happened in the church, in the early stages of the early church, as it was persecuted from its very, uh, you know, from its very inception. But also, I think Revelation chapter 12 is also a commentary on the entire church age, if you would, if I can use that word, the entire inner advental period. And this part never changes. Revelation 12, 11, how do the people of God, how do they overcome? How do the brethren overcome? They overcome because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, because they do not love their life unto death. Even when faced with death, we don't love our life more. Remember that when you are staring in the face of a seemingly encroaching technocracy and all of these things, digital currencies, digital IDs, transhumanism, a virtual reality everywhere, metaverse commercials that are now every other commercial, Don't forget that, that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and nothing else equals our victory, not politics, not activism, uh, none of that. It, it, It always has been and always will be union with Christ that is the essence of our vindication. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, Lord willing, next next week we will be tackling the issue of implantable technology until next time god bless you for another episode of christ and kingdom